Hello, and welcome to Then and Now. This month marks Native American Heritage Month. We're also soon heading into Thanksgiving. To acknowledge this month and the holiday that's approaching, we would like to revisit this episode that originally aired on October 12th, 2020, in honor of Indigenous Peoples Day, featuring Professor Kyle Mays. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We study change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we examine the most pressing issues of the day through a historical lens, helping us understand what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Today's podcast marks Indigenous Peoples Day, which honors Native Americans and the Native American experience in this country. The day commemorated on October 12th was once widely recognized as Columbus Day, but many states now recognize it as Indigenous Peoples Day. In recognition of Indigenous Peoples Day, we're pleased to have on then and now, Kyle Mays, who is an assistant professor of African-American studies, American Indian studies, and history at UCLA. Kyle is a pioneering and transdisciplinary scholar whose work stands at the intersection of African-American and Native American history. He is the author of Hip Hop Beats, Indigenous Rhymes, Modernity and Hip Hop in Indigenous North America, which came out with SUNY Press in 2018. And he's currently completing a major book forthcoming with Beacon Press entitled An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States, which will be part of Beacon Press's Revisioning American History series. Welcome to Then and Now, Kyle. Thank you, David, for the introduction, and I'm uh, glad to be here on the podcast. So as I noted at the outset, we are marking Indigenous Peoples Day. Can you tell us about the origins of the day and what it has come to represent? Yeah, so I'll take you back to 1977. Um, in, in the midst of uh, a lot of Indigenous nations from around the world, especially North America and Central and South America, advocating for indigenous rights and for the United Nations to advocate for it. So one of the resolutions which emerged in 1977, um, sort of the year of uh, indigenous peoples at a conference, um, they came up with the idea to, to replace or at least acknowledge and honor Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, and by uh, 1990 in Berkeley, California, um, a group of indigenous uh, folks and also non-indigenous folks got together and more formally created an Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, also, the, in a meeting occurred in Ecuador in the same year. And then by 1992, it became an official holiday within Berkeley. And then um, subsequently thereafter, uh, maybe like 20 years later or so, more and more uh, cities, states began to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. And I think Los Angeles was uh, 2018, I think it was. 2017 or 18, um, when the first Indigenous Peoples Day uh, happened in, in Los Angeles. So uh, it's really been a source of struggle 
um, and a movement led by indigenous peoples. And I want to just point out the one of the contradictions that people point out that uh, Columbus, uh, it's not a, a disrespect to Italian people, people of Italian descent, etc. But it is a critique of Christopher Columbus and the onset of colonization. And Indigenous Peoples Day as a concept is meant to honor, remember those lost because of genocide, but also project about Indigenous futures and the possibilities of radical resurgence, what Leanne Simpson would say, uh, for Indigenous peoples going forward. Good. Well, I hope we will get to talking about the future, uh, but um, this part of the podcast will be devoted to the past. This is the, the then section of, uh, of the podcast, um, and I want to delve now into your scholarship. Um, you're a scholar of both African-American and Native American history, and you are soon to come out with uh, a major new book, uh, Afro-Indigenous History of the United States. This is not only a matter of scholarly interest, but I think of deep personal interest to you since you are Black and uh, Saginaw Chippewa. So my question is, what's the personal stake for you in bringing together the histories of African-American and Native Americans? Well, for me, I'm uh, African-American Saginaw Chippewa. It's a tribe um, in the state of Michigan, about an hour and a half northwest of, uh, of Detroit, Michigan, where my family's from. And for me, growing up, it was never a contradiction being, uh, at least in my, within my family, being African-American or indigenous. Uh, my great-grandmother on my dad's side came to uh, Detroit in 1940, 16 years old. Uh, shortly thereafter, she married my African-American grandfather. Um, and they produced these would be my great aunties, um, uh, Afro-Indigenous children in the city of Detroit who are long active and struggles around uh, education, indigenous education, also black power and red power in the city of Detroit. Um, and Maya Judy actually founded what was the third ever public school in U.S. history called, it was called, it's no longer open, Medicine Bear American Indian Academy uh, in Detroit in 1994. And the beauty of that school was Detroit is predominantly black by then, but you had students who are black, white, Afro-Indigenous, white and Indigenous, Indigenous from the U.S. and Canada because the border is so close. So as a personal investment, it's always been important to me, how do we think about the struggles of Black and Native peoples, both uh, people who identify as Afro-Indigenous and as distinct communities? How do we deal with white supremacy and settler colonization uh, going forward if, if we to imagine a certain world? So that's my personal investment in this sort of research. Um, and I just also want to make my great grandmother proud who did a lot of struggle in Detroit uh, to make sure that both of these communities were respected. Right. So it seems to me that there'd be a, you know, if people were asked, they would say these two histories are kind of parallel lights, parallel lines that don't meet. But your project uh, is to point out uh, the points at which they do meet, at which they do intersect and, and overlap. Um, and I wonder what it's been like for you as a scholar to undertake that project. How have the uh, established scholarly communities uh, received that kind of intersected history that you've tried to do? Um, and, um, 
I'm thinking in particular of a notable counter encounter you had with a, a well-known scholar in one of the fields, um, uh, which you write about in the introduction to your book. Maybe you can share that with us. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when you uh, get into graduate school, uh, if you have the opportunity to go and visit, get a feel for the professors you'd be working with, the department. And I had a meeting uh, with a particular professor. And at the time, I was interested in studying um, the intersections and relationships between the Black Panther Party and the American Indian Movement. Uh, again, it's Black Indigenous Intersection. And uh, this professor straight up told me there is no intersection. Now, mind you, I had photos of Stoka Carmichael, who had changed his name to Kwame Ture, sitting next to Dennis Banks and Anishinaabe, uh, co-founder of the American Indian Movement. And I was baffled that a, you know, pretty prolific, well-known scholar of the Black freedom struggle would assert such a claim. But, um, and I've also heard the opposite uh, from Native folks that, there is, I remember giving a job talk and someone came up to me and was like, well, there is no uh, relationship and black people are fighting for civil rights and native people are fighting for sovereignty and treaty rights. So they're very different and there isn't much compatibility. And I found that perplexing, one, the historical record, which we'll get into, but also just a simple fact of, I mean, I know personally in my own life that these communities have intersected at particular times in history even if there's tensions. So uh, the erasure, I think, is more per pervasive in the academy and also just conversations in Black and Indigenous studies. They continue, with the exceptions of a few, to be to erase and ignore one another. Um, and my goal is to bring those conversations together um, in a variety of contexts, at least in this project. Right. So your personal and family story embodies uh, that intersection you've just spoken about. And now you have written the book about the intersections between African-American and Native American history. Um, can you tell us what some of the most important points of intersection have been over the course of that hundreds year history? Yeah. So I'll start just even prior to uh, the formation of the U.S. And I think important examples like uh, Phyllis Wheatley, right? The One of the first acclaimed uh, poets, not even just uh, African uh, female poet, but also just black poet during the during the period. But uh, she had conversation and correspondence with Samuel Okum, who was a Mohegan uh, Presbyterian minister. Um, and it wasn't very deep, but they engaged in conversations. So Okum, uh, like saying that he liked her work, et cetera. So there's conversations in the literary world between the two based upon her own writing. Um, and she also admired some of the work he was doing. And I think what, if I can imagine this, she thought that they had a connection because even though she was kidnapped and brought to the uh, Americas at, you know, like seven, she's, you don't lose some sort of cultural indigenous heritage, even at that young age, you still have some cultural elements that go with you as traumatizing as the surgery could be. So she could identify with an indigenous person um, just uh, around issues of um, oppression, and which is what she corresponded, and they corresponded back and forth with one another around oppression as Indigenous peoples, even though she was so young when she was um, kidnapped. Another important point is Paul Cuffey. Now, I remember learning about Paul Cuffey and reading some book in uh, grade school, 
But Paul Cuffey, I he's always portrayed as uh, African American and trying to create a colony in Sierra Leone. But um, as I've gotten older and just done research, Paul Cuffey was actually um, his father was kidnapped and brought to uh, the Americas at a young age. But Paul Cuffey himself, um, his mother was Wampanoag, right? So he is literally indigenous from two groups on his dad's side, uh, probably a Khan, and his uh, mother's side, uh, and indigenous to what has become the U.S. Um, and so he was uh, Afro-indigenous person, in fact, trying to return back to Africa one of the early Afro-Indigenous peoples. Um, and I'll, of course, there's a discussion of enslavement in the uh, American Southeast between the five tribes and, uh, and, and them enslaving Africans. And I want to point out with that intersection is a terrible uh, time in history. And some may be baffled why tribal nations would decide to enslave Africans. But one, they tried to show they're civilized. And the reason they wanted to do that was to keep their land and way of life as best as they could. The issue is African slaves became a pawn in this whole discussion. And that is the challenge and source of problems. And I do think tribal, those five tribal nations still need to make some redress uh, in dealing with that, like the anti-blackness that might exist within those figure communities. And then moving uh, well into the 20th century, W.B. Du Bois, and Charles Eastman attending the Universal Racist Congress in London in 1911, uh, the Black Civil Rights and Black Power Movements, um, Stokely Carmichael, uh, who changed the name of Kwame Ture, interacting with Clyde Belcourt during the, and they had a long lasting friendship that lasted well uh, into the 1990s. And Angela Davis and Clyde Belcourt, they came to Detroit and traveled around the U.S. raising funds for American Indian movements who were members who were uh, incarcerated or were political prisoners um, to stop the like repression in the U S um, and they collaborated on different projects. So there were, there were so many different things going on and where black and native people have tried to interact um, in a good way. Now it wasn't always uh, positive either. I mean, for instance, the Republic of new Africa, Founded in Detroit in 1968, uh, you know, they requested the five southern states in the south. Now, the question became that that they deserve because of slavery. And this is a larger conversation around reparations that the U.S. government owed them five hundred billion dollars. They deserve these five uh, the black belt states which has a longer history in the U.S. And. What do you do with Native people who are forcibly removed from those areas is the question that in some ways is unresolvable, resolvable historically, but is important to put on the table and to think very carefully about. So there's a lot of conflict, but also collaboration that I think I try to highlight throughout this book. So this is a work in, in, in a sense of excavation of, of really pushing to the fore uh, points of contact, collaboration, conflict, uh, also it seems the shared experience of being oppressed. Um, and in that regard, one of the concepts that 
surfaces in uh, the introduction uh, to your book is the idea of resistance um, and your insistence that resistance can take many different forms, not just the kind of uh, resistance, for example, that we see at Wounded Knee. Um, there can be cultural resistance. Um, and I wonder if you can speak of what resistance looks like. Um, and in fact, if that is an affinity between these two histories. Yeah, I mean, I'll um, go into the realm of popular culture right now. But I think like hip hop is one way in which Black and Native people have tried to collaborate. And I'm thinking here of uh, there's a Detroit-based rapper, Southie, um, who coincidentally went to my aunt's school back in the day. Um, he has a video called Follow Me Now, and he has a drape. There's a drape of Malcolm X, like kind of in the background, right? And there's, uh, and I'm connecting this to an interview Dennis Banks, uh, again, a co-founder of the American Indian Movement, had in the Black Scholar, a, a prominent Black Studies journal. And Dennis Banks talks about how important Malcolm X was to not only the Black freedom struggle, but also to Native struggles, because he talked about justice, uh, he talked about freedom, and he tried to imagine a world outside of white supremacy. So Malcolm X becomes a symbol not only for past generations, but also contemporary generations, which I would I call indigenous millennials, who are using culture to really challenge and reimagine what it means to be not only indigenous, but also uh, find at least cultural momentary ways to reclaim space, reclaim land, and create connections between the African-American and uh, indigenous communities. So one of the most notable instances of resistance, both in the cultural and um, uh, also in the political domain, uh, came in the 1960s. Uh, you mentioned it before, the Black Power Movement, the Red Power Movement, mm -hmm. Stokely Carmichael and his relationship with Na Native American leaders. Um, what was that intersection like? What was that connection like? What was the nature of the connection, if, if, there, if there was one? Um, in that most intense period in, in the history of the United States? Well, I think one, um, uh, you know, there's the idea of decolonization happening around the world in the 1950s and beyond. So they all connected with that. You have Native folks uh, studying decolonization movements throughout uh, the so-called third world. Um, common readings, of course, things like Frantz Fanon's uh, The Wretched of the Earth, they're all reading common literature. And I think one of the important things is they under they thought revolution was actually going to take place. And with that, they were like, well, who are the oppressed peoples within uh, in the within which we're, within which we're, we have contact? And like, OK, well, for us, you know, black and native people and other oppressed groups, we should collaborate and try to figure out if colonialism ends now, this nation state just is disrupted. What is the world going to look like? And I think that's a question that was very real to them in a way that may or may not have been real to some of us uh, more recently, uh, except with the except more recently. But um, they thought revolution was right around the corner. And so, you know, just like you had Black Power and Stokely Carmichael proclaiming this in 1966, you have Native activists also proclaiming uh, Red Power. It's sort of this genealogy of uh, symbols and signs of resistance 
that emerged in the 1960s. And, and it wasn't a source of appropriation, which I think the conversation happens more so today, but more so just like we have a revolution and we need to work together. How are we going to do this? And of course, there are actions, but there are symbols and signs that have to happen too. Some same thing with the Black Power Fist. You can find on in uh, Native resistance uh, art, you can find a Black Power Fist within some of that 1960s and 70s American Indian movement and other resistance organizations sorts of groups. So um, they found ways to collaborate, and it was very important to them to imagine this world outside of. Uh, the conditions in which they were living. Really interesting. So um, one of the chief tasks of this book uh, that is forthcoming, um, An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States, is to tell the untold stories of these interconnections between African-American and Native American peoples. Um, And part of it, it seems to me, is to retell the story of uh, the white United States. Um, You undertake... uh, the readings of foundational documents of the early American Republic, the Federalist Papers, the Constitution, later the famous uh, account of Alexis de Tocqueville. What does this rereading reveal to you? Well, for me, it, it reveals uh, two things that liber- U.S. liberal democracy, you know, meaning constitutionalism, republicanism, popular sovereignty, all those sort of things, individual freedom that we value are fundamentally rooted and the oppression of Black people and Native people and and other communities, but just for the sake of uh, being clear here, right? So you have um, uh, white male property owners who also enslaved Africans and also are actively uh, trying to dispossess the Native peoples or land at the same time they're writing this sort of documents. And so I think for me, we should all question why we hold the Constitution, the, the Declaration of Independence, the Federalist Papers in such high regard. I'm not saying, of course, as a historian, we should all read these, right? And you should read them carefully and think about the time in which they're written and who is excluded, right? Reading it against the grain, which we're all trained as historians often to do. But who's excluded in these narratives? Who, who in fact, is we the people? And I'm trying to get people to think about settler colonization and white supremacy as early projects and projects that run in tandem that disseminate also from these documents. And I'll use Tocqueville for an example. I had to, uh, I went to James Madison College at Michigan State. This is like a public affairs college. They do a lot of work on liberalism and U.S. democracy. And everyone has to read the Federalist Papers and Democracy in America. And we read those and I was just kind of bored with the readings, you know, that freshman year, we're not always the best readers, but I discovered there was a chapter uh, for a short title about the three races. And I just began to delve into that. And Tocqueville concluded that Africans, native peoples and whites would never really be able to live uh, in, in the U S on equal terms ever. And I went to the professor the next day, like, hey, uh, is there a reason we're not reading this section? This is really interesting. And the professor just kind of dismissed it. Oh, it wasn't a part of the reading, not that important. But for me, it's profoundly important. Why would Tocqueville, this like French dude 
who's also has some very compelling things to say, be telling us about um, how these groups can never live equally because he was critiquing also white supremacy in there, even as he's also upholding white supremacy in various parts of that, those essays. Uh, and so I want people, I want to flip it on its head and people to really delve deeply into the meaning of those things and the implications if we reread documents that tells uh, histories about our country. Like, what does that mean going forward? Yeah. So it's in that regard, your focus on African American and Native American history places into uh, clearer um, uh, representation. Um, these guiding ideologies of white supremacy and, and settler colonialism. Um, and especially in that regard, I wanna um, shift our focus from then to now um, by addressing your uh, proposition that um, black people should be regarded as indigenous um, insofar as settler colonialism is uh, very much involved with, uh, with uh, taking control of, of the indigenous. Um, can you explain this claim and what you see as the stakes in it? Sure. And I want to be uh, very clear. And I'm not saying that the descendants of slavery are indigenous in this particular historical moment, right? Because I don't want to erase the native people here in the U.S. And that, I think, will create further uh, complications around issues around solidarity. But on the flip side of that, I do think that historically speaking, we sort of erase the Africans who were, were kidnapped and forced to come to the Americas. Those were indigenous peoples. Um, and I think uh, Cedric Robinson and Black Marxism makes this point very clear. You know, even as they came as cargoes, they brought with them culture, languages, cosmologies, histories, and lived experiences that aren't just erased because of the horrors of the Atlantic slave trade. And I think that part is missed. Um, and I think there are still even indigenous elements. They don't look the same. They're very convoluted and complicated. They continue to exist amongst African Americans today, whether they're spiritual practices, uh, throughout the Americas, right? Um, it might, you might even consider it some sort of pan African indigenous, uh, remix, if you will. Um, there's, you know, what, uh, linguist Geneva Smitherman, and others have called Ebonics or African American vernacular English, rooted in West African languages, uh, remixed with uh, British and other forms of, and, and then U.S. English. And th those elements, at least the grammatical structure, still exist. And again, spiritual practices as well. Um, so that's what I mean by saying there's still some indigenous elements that continue to exist. And what the question that I'm trying to raise in this book: What happens if we reframe those people, not as black necessarily, right? I don't mean to take away blackness, but we also consider them, which they were indigenous peoples. How does that force us to reshape and re-understand and reevaluate how we're approaching uh, our the historical development of enslavement as it relates at, under the conditions of settler colonialism? So against the backdrop of that theoretical proposition, I want to ask uh, again about uh, actual intersections today um, at this important moment in the history of the United States following the murders of Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd, uh, and others, there has been an awakening of consciousness to the deep structures of 
racism in this country. And I'm wondering, how does this moment look through your dual lens, through your bifocal lens of an historian of African-American and Native American histories? Um, and particularly, um, uh, are we, do we see a resurgence of the kind of contacts that we saw in the 1960s between black and red power movements? I, I think we do. And I think even uh, before the, uh, the tragic murders of uh, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, um, things around the Flint water crisis, the Detroit water shutoffs, the C Dakota Access Pipeline, um, you know, Black Lives Matter put out a statement and even at a variety of local chapters throughout the U.S., different cities um, supporting the Dakota Access Pipeline and creating a bridge to say, hey, we support uh, Native resistance and uh, we want to do it in a good way and make sure that we're in good relations with the indigenous peoples of this land. Now, today, I think there are some uh, tangible and important conversations happening. Uh, I think Seattle is one place where uh, the particular part where by the police station, I can't remember the name, but they kind of occupy the area and active indigenous activists sort of forced all the uh, black radicals and others to say, well, what, what does this language of occupation mean? And are you including indigenous peoples as you reimagine how a particular, even though it's a small space, is going to be reimagined, right? The Chumamish and uh, other indigenous folks of that area. So I think that's a very interesting intersection. And the other thing is um, issues around statues um, and the Washington football team, right? So the native activists have been advocating for decades, Suzanne Harjo, Amanda Blackhorse, They've been doing all this stuff for decades, uh, but it happened within a moment of black lives. And I think that that condition and historical context is important to acknowledge that they, you know, tearing down all these uh, racist statues, Confederate statues, and then it forced people to say, well, I mean, and of course, the billionaire corporations said, hey, Dan Snyder and the Washington football team, I think you need to do something about this team. Uh, and, it, and it forced their hand to say, hey, actually we need to change the name, right? So I think uh, in signs and symbols and on the ground, there are many avenues through which black and indigenous collaborations are continuing to happen. And it uh, it's a legacy of that longer struggle um, of black and native collaboration, which is why I'm trying to get those things uh, in order and, and, and out to people for the book. So there's a longer legacy and they can draw on those examples. Right. So that's um, my next question, which is how can this entwined history um, be acted upon in the future? Um, you're a deeply engaged historian. Um, I imagine you understand history um, as then the history you uh, study um, as relevant to the present and future. Um, can the entwined history you relate um, advance the quest for justice for both groups? Yes. Um, I, and I'll, uh, so I would, I would, so you know, our colleague Robin D.G. Kelly has the concept of freedom dreams. Um, I mentioned earlier uh, Leanne Simpson, who's an Anishinaabe indigenous writer in Canada, has the uh, concept of radical resurgence. And I would combine them, a radical resurgence freedom dreams, right? So 
I think an important piece that Leanne wrote in 2014 in the wake of um, Michael Brown's uh, murders not being uh, at least tried for some form of justice. Um, she wrote a piece saying, it's my job as an indigenous person to make uh, room on my land for black people and amplify black voices and to co-resist. And for me, that was a brilliant take. I still haven't seen too many uh, Native folks sort of make that leap. I still think there's some tension that needs to be worked out. But I, I take that seriously to say, hey, there's a window and a bridge that uh, some Indigenous, especially women, are making with uh, Black communities to say, hey, we actually need to co-resist co together and make, and I'm making room for you all on my land. That's one thing. Um, the other thing that I, it's a conversation on reparations. Uh, you know, the William Darity and a co-author, they have a book out on reparations right now. Uh, and it's a difficult conversation. The Ta-Nehisi Coates piece is very challenging. And I understand and I support some form of reparations. But what does reparations look like in a racial capitalist uh, nation state? Is that something we should even advocate for really like, is it just going to be payments, but people continue to be exploited. There's still massive uh, poverty. And I know it's supposed to eliminate poverty in some capacity, but it might just reproduce certain uh, structures that still need, in my estimation, need to be fundamentally, fundamentally uprooted. And what about land? Right. So say black folks, your reparations, does that also include land for native people? And to me, that's an essential question going forward. Like happening in South Africa right now, there's still the uh, discussion of should the indigenous black South Africans be given land after land is taken from them in 1913 under apartheid, right? And I think that's a that would be justice and land without compensation. Now, there's a whole host of things about will it destroy South Africa's economy? Etc. And I pro propose, like, what if something like that were possible in the U.S., right? Land that was uh, coerced, because we know all treaties in the U.S. have been violated by the U.S., between Native nations have been violated. Vine Deloria Jr. has tracked that for uh, a long time ago. But what would that, what would returning land look like? And it, it can't be the same way of owning land in which we, we operate now, right? It has to be what uh, Martin Luther King Jr. called a revolution of values too. Because, you know, without changing the structures and the values of, of people, of all of us, then we're just going to recapitulate forms of oppression um, that don't, don't need to exist. So I'm hopeful, but also uh, cautious about the possibilities of uh, these radical resurgent freedom dreams. Yeah, I mean, I, there's so much in what you just said. I'm reminded of, of the fact that the Luskin Center had invited uh, last April Professor Daniel Wildcat to come and talk about, um, uh, as part of our ongoing series on reparations, um, his own uh, insistence that reparations not be accorded to Native Americans. That, in fact, it was a matter of restitution of land, uh, of property that had been stolen. Um, you push it one step further by suggesting that reparations for African-Americans may simply be another step in sort of the monetization of, uh, of the system um, and that, um, uh, that 
money payouts are not sufficient or adequate, don't get at the core of, of the deep structural problems. Um, uh, and therefore, um, you're suggesting a much more sweeping agenda of change, of radical change. Um, and it's in that regard that I want to ask you a final question um, uh, by recalling something you wrote in your introduction. Um, you write, I want you, dear reader, to pick up this book and acquaint yourself with new characters and histories, to think differently about well-known figures and old documents, and to either continue dreaming and building world outside of white supremacy and settler colonialism, or begin thinking about it. We have to dream and simultaneously build. We will win. We must. So my two questions uh, in conclusion are, do you think history, that profession uh, that you so expertly engage in, has a liberatory power? And do you believe that the arc of the moral universe is bending toward justice? Yes, I think the arc of the moral universe is bending towards justice. Um, and in history, it has to have a certain power, um, especially in this moment when the current president has uh, created, what I, I forget the exact name, but an executive order with the 1776 project and trying to radically uproot um, crit critiques of, of, of U.S. history. I mean, we're not going to get better without critiquing and coming to terms with historical injustice in this country. So history, um, you know, generation for generation Zers, millennials, not just myself, and those even beyond can tell us a lot about where we've been, what mistakes we made, and how we can be better, not only in the present, but going forward. Um, and I often... I used to like the term history doesn't repeat a kind of rhymes, but for, you know, oppressed populations across the board beyond just black and indigenous folks, it's kind of just a large onslaught that, you know, of course, certain things have fundamentally changed, but not fundamentally, they like kind of surface level changes, but they continue to happen over racism, anti-Semitism, xenophobia, indigenous dispossession, they find ways of continuing to reproduce themselves. It doesn't even matter the historical moment. It doesn't even matter if poverty has declined, what have you, they, they continue, right? And that means something's fundamentally wrong with society and has not really changed as significantly as I think many of us would have desired. And for me, that's, that's the challenge, uh, where history is important to remind us and, and characters tell us a lot. They tell us that people fought as hard as they could and found all sorts of creative ways to resist. And I, that's why history has a certain liberatory power. You read about Harriet Tubman, you read about Frederick Douglass, you read about all these characters and they did the very best they could given the circumstances. Um, it's a very violent nation state too. And they sort of had these freedom dreams. Um, and this is why I remain hopeful. And uh, this is, but I, I just watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix. And um, I used to tell people to Google things, but even that's not a good idea because you don't know what they're going to get on, <laughs> based on the algorithms on their page. So uh, we still need books. 
I love books as a historian, but a lot of you know folks don't. We still need historians writing books. Well, we should all look forward to um, Kyle May's new book, An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States, forthcoming with Beacon Press. Um, it's really been uh, a very illuminating uh, time with you over the last 40 minutes or so, Kyle. Thank you very much um, for being with us. Thank you for listening to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. You can learn more about our work or share your thoughts with us at our website, luskincenter.history.ucla.edu. Our show is produced by David Myers and Maya Ferdman, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.